that is going to make things right for you. And just to make sure that we, we uh, are clear on that, the rest of the verse kind of fleshes that out, right? So we keep reading. It says not only to keep your life free from the love of money, but he says, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in other words, he's saying be content. The love of money is to not be content. So he's kind of saying, now it's not just keep your life free from the love of money. Let me further explain. Just be content with what you have. Now, I'm not sure that there is a less American phrase in the Bible than that. Right? Just be content with what you have. As a matter of fact, in so many ways, like I was a, I was a, a, a religion major in, in college, like a lot of times that is seen, these kind of phrases are seen as ways, they're seen in terms of power, right? They're seen as ways to kind of keep people down. Don't be ambitious because you've got to be content with what you have. Stay in the situation that God put you, like that kind of thing, right? Maybe you've heard that before. That's not entirely what he's talking about here. This is getting at another kind of churchy word. The word covetous. I know we don't use that word often. As a matter of fact, probably never, unless you're reading the Ten Commandments. And, and because we don't use it often, we don't think we deal with it. What it means is envy. Hmm. It means disregarding what we have because we'd rather have what someone else has. Hmm. You could be covetous about a lot of things. You could be covetous about someone's financial situation. Sure, a lot of us are, frankly. But we could be covetous about someone else's spouse. I wish I had her husband. He seems to be more attentive. I wish I had his wife. She seems to be whatever. I wish I had, I wish I had his car. I wish I had blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all about that, okay? So why is that a problem? I mean, apart from, I, I think all of us on the surface would go, that, that doesn't seem right. But here's why that's a problem. Remember back to our four assumptions, right? If we're made by God and for God, if God has placed us here for his redemptive purposes, if he's placed us not just here but in a specific place to be a blessing to those specific people, then, and then finally, everything that we have is a gift from him, then what covetousness is saying is, I don't want my gift. I want his gift. I don't want mine. I want what he has. And the only reason that that seems strange to us is because we've tried to find ways to cover over what it's like to be for. Because we've been doing that since probably even before we were four. I don't want my toy. I want his toy. My kids had this, ooh, maybe I should, yeah, my kids had this weird way of like manipulating each other and just saying that their toy really wasn't, oh, you know what, I really love this one, but I'll be okay with that one, and then you trade me, ha <laughs> now I got the one I want. Like, they would do that, uh, and, and they got it, honestly, okay, so uh, what this is dealing with, this concept of being free from the love of money, being content with what you have, is about saying, are you willing to believe that all of those four assumptions we talked about are actually true? Are you willing to believe that God not only has, has given you something, but he's given it to you specifically for a purpose because he knows you and the context that he's given put you in? Now, here's a special little note that I want to make. Verse 5 talks about greed and discontent, right? 
Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to just to look one verse above that. Let me just read it for you. We don't have the projector. Let me just read it for you. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, Rick, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Here's what I want to note. In the same breath, this pastor, this teacher, apostle, whatever, whoever wrote it, we're not really sure who wrote it, mentions sexual immorality and adultery, greed and discontentment. Do you see them the same? Would you mention them in the same breath? You know, I think I've, I, I mentioned this a while ago, but, um, you know, uh, one of the pastors in our denomination who recently went to be with the Lord, who pastored in Manhattan for a long time, said that he'd been pastoring for 20 years in the midst of a city and, and had heard all kinds of people come and confess all kinds of sin to him. The only sin that he never heard anyone confess to them or to him was greed. You heard everything else. Now, I've been doing this a long time too, not as long as that, but I have been doing this for a while. I'll have to affirm that, that, that statement. I have never heard anyone come to me and say, please, Pastor, please pray for me. I am greedy. And that is not an invitation for all y'all to rush up here afterwards <laughs> and say, Pastor, please pray for me and prove me wrong. Okay, I get it. The point is this. This seems to say they, it puts them on an even playing field. And in our culture, we're f especially in Christian culture, we're like, we, we, are, we are down with the idea that God is opposed to sexual immorality and adultery, and he is. But what we are, seem to be have this little detente with, this little peace treaty with, is the idea that we can be greedy, and that's, not, oh, that's just fine. That our discontent isn't actually that bad. God seems to say maybe we should talk about them at the same time, Right? I think we get this. Maybe we don't. I think we're gonna we're we're starting to get this. But but saying I have to stop be content or I have to stop being discontent is a lot like saying, you know, I just need to. I, you know what? I'm just gonna stop being anxious. I'm just gonna stop being sad. You know, like this big disconnect. And I think that's because we don't look at what's driving our discontent. So let's look at the source of that. Okay, shall we? Let's keep reading. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, the, this command that, that, that the writer of Hebrews give, gives us. To be free of the love of money. Don't put your loyalty on money. Instead, be content with what you have. All of that command is based on a promise. The promise of God to never leave us or forsake us. And that means that the writer of Hebrews believes that the thing that is driving our discontent, the thing that is kind of pushing our love of money, is a fear. It's a fear that is answered with the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now we're going to get to that promise in a minute. But again, I want to get at what the actual problem is. See, a problem that God won't abandon means that the problem that drives our discontent, our, our, our love of money, is this concept of fear. That fear that God is not for us. 
that God is not with us, that God doesn't care about us. The fear that we are abandoned and alone and in an isolated state left vulnerable to the powers of the world. Does that sound familiar? Because that is functionally how 99% of us, if not a full hundred, I'm leaving the possibility that someone's doing really well with Jesus this morning. That's how the vast majority of us live our day-to-day lives. That means that this behavior, this discontent is rooted not in your relationship with stuff, but in your relationship with God. That this discontent is not rooted in your relationship with stuff. It's not like, you know, if I just got a little more, if I just had enough of a raise, if I could just not wonder at the end of every month where this money's going to, then I would be content. And God's word is telling us, no, 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 it's based in something different in the story, or in, in, in our relationship with God. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't surprise us, because that's the very story that the Bible tells us, right? That we were, in the beginning, created by God to, to be in his image, to, to have a dependent relationship with him, to, to lovingly depend on him for everything. That those four assumptions that we mentioned at the beginning, that they weren't something that we had to be convinced of, they were just standard operating procedure. That was, our, that was our normal operating system. Yes, we now know God is for us. Everything is given. He's given us all things. He's, he, we are meant to depend on him. But then we broke that, right? We, we turned away from him. We broke relationship with him way back in the beginning. Why? Because someone convinced us that God was not for us. I know, I know, we, we love to look at that, especially in our tradition. We love to look at that story back in Genesis 3, and we go, see, the problem was is that we wanted to be God. We wanted, we wanted equality with him, and th- there's, there's something to that. But the root of the, of the temptation was not, look how great you are. It was, you can't trust him. It was, you can't trust God. He didn't really say that. Oh, that's not really true. He's not telling you the truth. He's holding you back. He's trying to keep your, your joy from you. He's trying to keep, he's holding, he's taking your potential and he's reining it in. He, in fact, he's not for you at all. He's using you. And when we turned away from him, that lie became our new operating system. It's not a glitch, right? That's a feature now. And we're all born with it. All born with a sense that not only can I be independent of God, but I have to. I have to be. I'm on my own in a crazy world, and I've got to look out for number one. Familiar? You're not the only one. So in our minds, more often than not, it's money that can answer all of the things that we seem to feel the need for, right? Our independence drives us to the point where we, we know there's something wrong. Like our, our, our brokenness is, has not only kind of put that, that operating system in place, not only kind of bent us away from God, but made us guilty before him. And so we want a status. We know that we need to get something back. That's why we have to kind of 
get success or get morality or get a reputation. We need a status. We know that we're vulnerable, and so we need security. We need safety. We need, something's got to provide that for us. And there's that hunger deep inside us, a thing that never seems to be filled because we were made by God and for God, but we, we don't want to have anything to do with him now. We can't trust him. And so that, that need for satisfaction remains. And in our minds, money can answer all of those things. All right. This is huge, so listen close as we look at seeking security. Your lack of contentment, my lack of contentment, right? those things are born out of our insecurity our independence. This is why you can't just seem to make yourself more content. This is why I can't either. We can't just seem to make ourselves more content. We can't seem to just stop thinking that a little more money will help. Why can't I just stop that? Why can't I just get that through my head? And this is why every time you get that raise or that unexpected gift, you're suddenly in the same place that you were the week before. Thinking, man, if I could just get a little bit more. And that means that our lack of generosity is also grounded in our independence. Why we don't give? Why is it that we don't tithe? Why is it that we, we don't see our resources, our money as a spiritual gift that apparently the Apostle Paul, a real Christian leader, he's, he seemed to see them that way. Why is it that we don't see them that way? Because we believe that those things will make us somebody will make us secure, and will finally satisfy us. And that is why we can be fooled into thinking that we don't have an issue with our relationship with money if we aren't crazy spenders, right? Look, I get it. Some of us in this room are not crazy spenders, right? We're not. Like you, you, don't, you live a very modest lifestyle. And you're like, see, this, this is why, Rick, I don't, I don't have an issue with this. No, no, no. All that means, frankly, is that you aren't looking to money to give you satisfaction. That's all that means. If you're a crazy saver, maybe if, if saving is what kind of curtails your generosity, if it's your, your, your retirement plan or your, your general savings and you just can't ever get enough, then, then let me tell you something. That is not the opposite of being a crazy spender. It's really just the same thing. You're just spending it on yourself. You're spending it not on your satisfaction. You're spending it on your security. You're spending it on your safety. Because if I have enough, then I'll be safe. If I have enough, then nothing will happen to me. I can keep the chaos at bay. So all that means that you're seeking safety and not satisfaction, but you're still looking for money to do that for you. The solution to all this, thankfully, is given right here in this promise. Look down at verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Now, um, your Bible probably says this, but um, that, that little, all of verse 6 is pretty much, that's, that's a quote from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 118. And listen, if you're new to church, or maybe you kind of gave up on church, but some reason you're here, um, then then you might think that what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New Testament is like dramatically different, right? It's like kind of the standard fare. It's the standard like uh, college Bible class uh, YouTuber type thing now, like see the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. Uh, let, me, let me be really clear. Like 
this, this is not two books. Like, it's one book. It's one book. The New Testament makes far less sense without the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is a story that's looking for a fulfillment, and that fulfillment is found in Jesus. Like, it's seeking this conclusion. There are not two gods. There's not two ways of dealing with people. And that's why the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament so much. It's simply showing how Jesus actually makes all of that books, all of that section here, that entire, you know, all of those books in the Old Testament, he makes them make sense. Here's what I mean. Why would God forsake in the first place? Right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why would he do that? Well, it all comes back to what I said in the garden, right? That we're not only, not only when we believed that lie and turned away from God, where we now, uh, like, bent away from him personally, but we betrayed him. We betrayed him relationally. And when you betray someone relationally, there is this thing. Guilt happens. Right? But here's the deal. And so what that did, and you can read it in the story, and in the story, like, they, they turn away, they betray, they do the thing they're not supposed to do, and then, and then when God comes walking, they go hiding. They're hiding from him, they're hiding from each other, they're covering up, they're feeling shame. But God comes looking for them. It's a beautiful part of that story. Because right there in that, in that moment of our, our greatest failure, God makes a promise. And he says in that promise, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix what you broke. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to deal with what, what, uh, what we now call sin. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with this betrayal. I'm going I'm to take care of the guilt that you have incurred. And that... That is why Jesus came, right? Jesus came specifically to live the life that we couldn't, perfectly dependent on God, to die the death that we wouldn't, to, to bear, that, the, bear the, the, the weight of our betrayal of God, and then to rise again victoriously because it couldn't hold him. And so in one sense, God has never forsaken humanity because he promised at the beginning to, to deal with this issue that we made. But at the same time, this is not a promise that's given willy-nilly. This is a promise given to those who have trusted in Jesus. And, and that is why we have this line, the Lord is my helper. That word helper is used overwhelmingly in the Bible about God. And, and, and it doesn't mean what we think it means. To us, a helper is the person who does the work so that the other person can do the major work, right? Like the helper is like what you have, if you've got little kids, it's what you have when they come help you with yard work. Right? Your daddy's helper, right? Mm, Yeah, daddy's going like, I could use less helpers. Like that, sorry kid, Uh, the kids aren't here. I can say this freely. Like yeah, this, this is true and we know this to be true, right? We know this to be true. But that's not what the Bible means when it says helper. Overwhelmingly, when this word is used, and it's used of God the vast majority of the time, it is used of someone who comes to deliver, to rescue, to save. Ladies, this is the same word that's used when God creates woman. Why? Because Eve rescued Adam from his state of being alone. She delivered him from it. And so that is what is going on here. God is our helper. He is our rescuer. 
He made it right. And because he made it right, he has proved that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So do you see how this promise is a solution to our discontent? How it helps us in being content in the first place, right? Our fear of being left and forsaken. Because we know that something isn't right. And our fear of being left and forsaken drives us to seek after safety and security and status and satisfaction in our money. It does that. But when we no longer fear that, when we no longer have the fear that God is gonna, that I'm forsaken, that I'm alone, that I, I can't handle life, that, that I, if I can't provide for me, no one will provide for me. When that fear goes away, then the money just can flow. We don't, we don't have to hoard it. We don't, we don't have to cling to it. It can become a tool that it was meant to be. This thing that can bless instead of being this thing that has to save. When we see the promise of God made sure in Jesus, we can become free with our money and use it as God calls us to. And, and some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, I don't, I don't know, Rick. I, I have no idea how this is supposed to work. Just because God won't leave me doesn't mean that I will have enough. Right? That is a great point. So let me, let me give you the basic line of argument here. What we see here, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is what um, scholars call an argument that I'll give you the technical term and then I'll tell you what it means, because some of you like the technical term, so we'll do that. It's called a Calvahomer argument. Okay. Whatever, okay? That, that, all that basically means is this was a way that ancient Jewish teachers that were called rabbis, that they used, that we would call an argument from the lesser or from the greater to the lesser, right? If this great thing is true, then why not this little thing? If the big thing, if he's true to the big thing, then of course he's going to be true to the little thing. Same thing the apostle Paul did. Right in, in, his, in his letter in Romans 8, when he says, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, will he not, along with him, give us all things? Right? So some of you are thinking, oh, awesome. That means I get to be filthy rich. No. I mean, you might, but that's not what this promise is. You see, when we say something like, how will I know that I'll have enough? God generally answers back with another question. Well, how much do you think is enough? Listen to me. God is not a Coke machine where you take your little prayer coin or your obedience coin, or your faith coin, and you put it in, and you press your button, and you get the blessing out. That is not the way God works. There's no way you can read the Bible and see God that way, right? That is not the way God works. It's not the way it goes. If, if that is the case, then frankly, you have to believe that all of Jesus' early followers were complete failures of faith, because they all died poor, Right? None of them were like, 
rolling up on Caesar's house and like, hey, what's up? Like, we're hanging out now, right? Because we're about the same level. My, my daddy's the king. Like, uh. no, they were, they were crucified. They were martyred. They were in most, most, of, not all of them. Obviously, all of them were doing pretty, some of them were doing pretty well. But that was not like all of the, the great leaders we see in the Bible. They weren't, that's not what their reality was. But if that's where you are this morning, if you're like, you know, but I think God wants me to flourish, and we all know in our culture that what flourishing means is I've got lots and lots of money. I love you. You are not worshiping God. You're worshiping what you think God will give you. If you're taking your little prayer coin or your little faith coin or whatever that thing is that you think if I put this in the machine and press the button I'll get this out of it then I'm here to tell you that what you're worshiping is what is coming out of the machine that's what is most important to you and God is simply a tool for you to get it and you want to use him because you know he's he's more than powerful enough he could give it to you he can give you the thing that you really want That thing may be very, very good. It may be. But it cannot be God. So here's what this all means. In becoming content, the answer is not an issue of stuff. Right? It's not an issue of stuff. It's not an issue of having a little more. Nor is it an issue of trying your hardest, like getting rid of it so that you can make yourself content. It is about trusting in the promise of God. In other words, becoming content is about believing the gospel again. It's about seeing that God has already given you, in Jesus, the most precious thing he has. His very self. And if he has met our deepest need, he has already given that. What's a few dimes? Like, What's a few pieces, green pieces of paper? A few digits in an account. If he has already met our deepest need, will he not meet the ones that aren't as costly? See, if if we can see that the reason for our discontent is not stuff that's out there, but it's something in here, then we can shift how we deal with it. If you struggle with generosity, as I'm sure all of us do to an extent, right? But if that's you and you struggle with that, if you don't feel free to give, if you don't feel free to tithe, if you, if you don't feel free to give to others, but you fool yourself into believing that you will when you just get a little bit more. I need to tell you, friends, you are lying to yourself. You are lying. Your discontent isn't because, you know, you've kind of arrived and your, your lifestyle needs to it really needs to reflect that. That's okay, right? Like that, that, no, that's, that's not it at all. It's because you are looking to your stuff to satisfy you or to make you safe or to make you somebody. And Jesus is the only answer to those things. He's the only answer. We need to repent. And, and listen, I'm not, 
you're not the only ones there. I need to as well, but we need to do this. And hopefully today, right, today's a great day for it. We're about to come to this table with empty hands where we, we are looking for Jesus to fill us. What a great time to say, you know what? I have been putting my trust in my stuff. Jesus, change me. Help me to repent. But we need to, to repent of seeking those things in numbers. Money cannot save you. It cannot keep you safe, and it cannot make you somebody and thus loved. It is a tool. And our problem is deeper than just a lack of stuff. Our problem is a broken heart. It is a problem that Jesus alone can deal with. And that is because the answer to our discontent is not a product. It's a person. Would you pray with me? Lord, the reality is that we are, we are discontent people. We are a people driven mad by hunger and thirst and a, and a desperate need to be satisfied. We are a fearful people who build our little tinker toy walls in the midst of a hurricane thinking it'll keep the wind out. And we are an insecure people thinking if we just kind of pretty up the outside, everyone will think we're great. And that doesn't change just because we, we come to you. We still struggle with that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change us, that you would make us new, that you would make us generous. Lord, where we are afraid, give us faith. Where we are hungry, would you fill us with yourself? And where we are thinking that that we are not enough, that we are not loved, we are not somebody. I pray that you would, you would convince us of the, the amazing privilege to be called a child of God because that is what we are. And I pray that as you do it, our, our hearts would be given towards gratitude and praise because you're worthy of it. In Jesus' name. to make sure that, sorry, now you can hear me. Um, during our final song, uh, any parents can go uh, pick up their kids in the uh, lobby and bring them back in. This is pre-K and up for uh, our communion. Uh, we're about to sing the words, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. So we are responding and committing to the one who first loved us. Let's rest and celebrate that. Would you stand? was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you
confess our faith together. If you are here and you are a Christian, one of the ways that we um, respond to the preaching of the gospel is by declaring our yes. I believe that. And so we, during our time to take communion, we do that by confessing together the Apostles' Creed, which doesn't say everything we believe, but it does give the story, what we believe about what makes us right before God. So let's do that together. If you're not a Christian, don't feel pressure. I know everyone's about to talk, and it'll sound weird, and you'll feel weird, but don't, you don't have to do this. You can just listen in, but you can also try it on if you'd like, okay? Maybe it'll fit. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This is another of the weird things that we do as Christians. It is. We call it something. We call it a, a supper. We call it a supper. It's this little thimble full of things. We call it a supper. Sometimes pastors will call it a feast. You're like, ah. And it's weird. And so if you're here this morning and this is new to you, then I'm just, I'm agreeing with you, okay? But help, let me help us understand just a little bit about what this is about. The scriptures call what we're about to do a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That's very important. It is a sign, which is to say it is something that we look at that points to something else. Okay? In other words, the substance of what it is that we're benefiting from isn't on these tables. It is a sign that is pointing to something else. It's very important. But it's also a seal, which is to say not like a or or and not a um, not like a Ziploc seal, but like a a, a a royal seal. For instance, if you were a prisoner and you were in jail and you got a piece of paper that said it was signed by the President of the United States that offered you pardon, if it did not have the seal of the presidency, it's useless. Right? The seal confers authority. And so as a seal, what this does is it confers authority. Now here's the thing. This is not a sign and seal of your faith. It is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. A covenant is a promise-bound relationship. This is a sign and seal of something he has done. Right? That, that Jesus has come, lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us, and that with faith in him, but placing our trust in him, that God is true to his promise to rescue us from our sin and to make us his child. And so this is something, and this, the, the scriptures 
speak in a mysterious way about this. Like I said, the substance isn't this, the, the wine or juice and, and this little wafer. This is like, you're like, this doesn't really, work. I, I'm hungrier than this. It's getting close to lunchtime. Like, this isn't f- filling me. I know. This points us to what will. But here's the thing. It's not an empty sign. Like an empty sign is something we go like, okay, I get it. It's kind of, yeah, okay, my mind's supposed to go to Jesus and blah, blah, blah. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that word remembrance was often used in another kind of ceremony that was done. It was the Passover. And that Passover, when they said remember, the ancient Jewish teachers said that that word remember wasn't to like to cast your mind back to what happened. It was to consider yourself present. To reckon yourself as being there. So to remember what Jesus has done is not simply to go, think about it. It's to go, no, 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 no. When it happened, as you come up here, know that you were present with him in his crucifixion. Why? Because by faith, what's true of him is true of you. You are united to him. And so in some mysterious way that I wish I could write a book and answer for you, I'd, I'd make a lot of money off of it, that... What that, like, it, it is a nourishing of our faith. We are nourished our, on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, and you are a Christian, you have placed your faith fully and finally in Jesus. Now let me be clear. What I didn't say is someone who has been raised in church, someone who walked the aisle 30 years ago, someone who, who knows all the right answers. You can know a ton about Jesus and not know Jesus. But if you have placed your faith fully and finally in the finished work of Jesus, this is your table. You come and you celebrate here. But if that's not true of you, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, you know, you haven't received a covenant sign of baptism, you're not you're not part of a church like this one, we are so glad you're here. We want you to be here. But until such time as you can say those three things, you don't have to lie to anyone. You don't have to pretend to me or the person sitting next to you. You are perfectly safe to just go, I am checking this out, and these people are weird, and whatever it is they're doing up here is weird. I get it. Help us preserve the integrity of this table. Okay? You can just stay where you're at when people are coming up. No big deal. Trust me. Trust me, no one's thinking about you, right? They're not looking at you. They're thinking about themselves. We're all self-centered, okay? It's okay. But for the rest of you, those who have faith in Christ, come. Come. Because on the night in which Christ was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup. Maybe it was this big. And he took the cup and he said, this is a big cup. He said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. And as often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. When we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim that our problem was so bad, it took the death of the Lord of life. But we proclaim his death until he comes again, which is to say, it didn't win. Jesus won. 
and he will come again to make the world right. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this table we ask your blessing. There is nothing that we can merit that would warrant you coming and feeding us, nourishing our faith. There's nothing. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're, we're, we're not loved. Like, none of that merits anything. We are lovely because you have loved us. And so we come and we ask, by your grace and by the promise you have made, that you would set apart these elements, that you would use them for what you intended. Not that you'll transform them into something they are not, but that you will use them for what you intended, fellowship with you and with one another. Would you come, lift us up in the heavenlies to feast on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And would you send us from this place as, as nourished beggars, helping every other beggar we find know where they can find the same bread of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, in a second, as you come forward, what you're going to do is you're going to come down the aisles, okay, these different aisles. You're going to come, just kind of gather row by row, and you're going to come down um, to grab the elements. They, they both come in one of these little things like here. The bread's on one side, the wine or juice is on the, in, on the other. There's wine, juice, and gluten-free. It's all very well marked by uh, those folks who ministered to us by laying these out um, and who have also been praying for you as they've done that. So um, you come, grab those, and head back to your seats, and then um, we'll take it together. And as you head back, one of the ways in which traditionally we have responded as a tradition and here in this church is that on communion Sundays, because we have been given much, we can give much. And so our deacons have stuff at the back of the room. You can give on your way back to your seat. You could give on your way out to the deacon's offering, or you can give online. And the deacon's offering specifically goes to providing mercy for those who need uh, financial assistance and care. In our, in our church and outside, I'd love for you to respond in that way. But come, come to the table that Christ has set for you. It is yours by grace.
Christ was broken for the broken. His body was broken so that yours would be made whole. Taste and see his goodness. This that we drink is a cup of blessing. But it is a cup of blessing because Christ took your cup that was full of curse and drank it to its dregs so that you could share in his cup of blessing. Take and drink all of you. Our great God, we give you thanks because you are true to your promise. You are true to your promise to meet us here in this table. And there is nothing that will take you from that promise. And we bless you that by faith you have fed us and nourished our faith that as we go from here, we might live into the, the, the works that you have created for us as your, as your masterpiece. Give us grace to do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to be sent out, um, if you would like prayer this morning, we will have prayer partners on the windows where I'm pointing who would love to pray for anything that uh, you would need prayer for. And also, if you have any questions or um, things that you're processing from this morning uh, about Christianity or even what you heard this morning, Pastor Rick will be hanging out down here in the front. Would you please stand for our dismissal and commission? Friends, let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. College folks or those in that age group, free food. Out this door, into that other hallway, or into that other building, we will feed you and you will be fed. And it'll be awesome, okay? But as you go from this place, whether it's to that or some other, know that you leave with the blessing of God upon you because of the work of Jesus. Receive that now. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in that peace.